This is Icy Dice. I'm your host, Bear Necessities. Icy Dice is a podcast about Major Command, the terrific turn-based online multiplayer strategy game. This show explores how the game is played, from beginner knowledge to advanced theory. It also looks at the community of players and developers around the game that make Major Command a great place to play. Episode 2, The Devil's Crown series, continues. Dear listener, forewarning, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you may want to before listening to this. This episode covers the group stage of the tournament, reviewing current standings, how the predictions that Tape and I made fared against reality, Mars strategy, and what we've learned from the tournament thus far. Because one person talking all by himself about other people playing board games might be a bit dull, I called in reinforcements. Good afternoon. Hey, Tape, it's Bear. Hi, Bear. How's it going? Not too bad. I'm really excited to talk about group stage in our Doubles Crown Series tournament. Me too. Me too. Mars. Yes. Um, why don't we start out by discussing the, how our predictions fared against current standings. Okay. That sounds good to me. Let's see if we were truly prophetic or if we were completely and wildly off base. I, we, I think we did okay. So looking at the red group first, the... Results were that TH Child and Dorsey placed first with a really stunning victory, more wins than any other team in the tournament. They were followed up by Linear Curve and Luis Casanova, who won in a tiebreaker against Hordick and Hod, well fought by both teams. Uh, Hordick and Hod therefore came third, and Engineer and Norbs came in fourth. Let's see how that compares to our predictions now. You predicted that Seed 1 was going to be TH Child and Dorsey that seed two was going to be Hordick and Hod, seed three was going to be Engineer and Norbs, and seed four was going to be Luis Casanova and Linear Curve. And as it turns out, T.A. Child and Dorsey did indeed run the board on this. We'll talk about going first a little bit later, but they definitely had that going for them as well. So I had predicted that Luis Casanova and Linear Curve would make it into spot number two. I also predicted that Engineer and Norbs would come in last, a prediction that was a long shot to begin with, but ended up coming true. I know you've looked into this a bit more than I have. In looking at their games, at least in the Mars phase of those initial games, those six games, two different teams who went second actually won their games. And that would be Hordick and Hod over Norbs and Engineer, and Luis Casanova and Linear Curve over Engineer and Norbs. So it seems that uh, Engineer and Norbs, per your prediction of them coming in last, kind of fits with what we saw on Mars. They weren't able to capitalize on going first, be it strategy or dice. Yep. I, I didn't have an opportunity to check and see how, how good or bad their dice were. It's still a little bit hard with the current interface to dig that deep into game records. But I did get to witness several of the games take place turn by turn just by clicking into them through the, uh, through the game links. There are some interesting games that took place there. We'll get back to those a little bit later. But let's talk about blue group standings. Okay. There was a three-way tie between the teams San Hetton and F-15 Free Eagle, the General and Cardinals Rule, and once in Clarkenfeld. Each team getting four wins in the first and second rounds of group phase. That left Pittman and Crypto Gym as a team out in the cold, being eliminated before tiebreakers. The one that's more interesting to me is uh, once in Clarkenfeld, by my reading here, won all three of their Mars games. Yeah, they performed really, really well in Mars. It might be worth digging into a little bit about why that happened, uh, whether it was dice, excellent strategy, going first, or the happenstance of where their initial troops were positioned. All of those things will come into play, and all of those things will be discussed. Indeed. But let's consider how our predictions fared. You liked Sanhattan and F-15 Free Eagle for the number one seed coming out of this group. You also poo-pooed the idea that the general and cardinal's rule would have an easy time of it and make it through in the first or second spot, and you were vindicated in both of those predictions. Um, I believe you also said that once in Clarkenfeld should be taken seriously, that you hope to see them do well. I don't recall you making a particular prediction about where they would land, although I do remember that both of us spoke strongly in favor of 
equipped the gym and Pittman as a team succeeding, wanting to see them as the odd couple, uh, veteran experienced player, new player combo, making it through. Alas, they did not. So mixed for us on blue, I think that generally speaking, your editorializing was pretty accurate and the stats were all pretty tight coming in for the top three teams, certainly absolutely for the top two teams. So no huge surprise here, except that it was incredibly close going in with a three-way tie. Now we've got the green group, my favorite group, because we are in it. Yes. You predicted that the first seed was going to be Roskakov and Risky One. And you were right. They did come out in first place. So congratulations. You definitely won that over me. Thank you. I predicted that we would be the first seed. We were not. We ended up in the second position. So uh, two points to Tapeworm. And that was a close enough thing. That second seed or second position should very much or equally could have been Eric J. Klein and Mickey. It was it was razor thin. So Eric J. Klein and Mickey came back from a 0-3 start in round one of group stage. All three of their Mars games were lost. They managed to recover with three consecutive wins in the Middle East. Pretty impressive performance. Um, there's a lot of variability we've seen across groups, but theirs was the most stark. A very uh, Really, uh, uh, well done. I believe the sports metaphor would call them gutsy, maybe plucky, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that was quite the turnaround for them. So props to them for giving us a run for our money, not to uh, make us sound too formidable, but they sure did. Yeah, and the tiebreaker, the tiebreakers we played with them, they were good. Uh, the one thing that should be said is that we went first in both cases, so we had a highly, a, a much greater likelihood of getting through the tiebreaker than they did, simply on account of going first in both games. Yeah, we definitely lucked out there. I truly believe that had they gone first in both of those, that there is a decent chance, a likely even chance, that they would have been the ones in the second position and moving on to the next group. They almost came back and and beat us in the second one of those. They certainly started out with a fair chance there, considering that I believe we both started with pretty cold cold dice in that game. Uh, And it actually took a, a nice set with a very lucky run near the end for us to win one of those. Wrapping up the green group, I think it's fair to say that our predictions were fairly spot on. You were correct in predicting Roskakov and Risky One would be in the first position. Uh, I was correct in saying that we would make it through, though not with the flying colors that I had hoped. That left lots of luck and easy to kill. In last place, as we predicted, and Eric J. Klein and Mickey just being edged out in a tiebreaker. Moving on to the yellow group, first place was won by Iron Z Tiger and St. Jude, and second place, Dwar Arnel Elukiel and Red Storm, oddly, these are the, the, the third and fourth place teams in their group in terms of cumulative score and position in the, in the tournament. So they are a bit of a surprise to see them up at the top of the rankings in that group, wouldn't you say? I absolutely agree, particularly our Pennsylvania duo, Iron Z Tiger and St. Jude. They actually only had one game in the three Mars games where they actually went first. So they managed to pull one upset in there. Uh, and actually go two and one, which set them up to essentially walk into the Middle East, needing one win out of three to reach three, which they've got. But I wanted to highlight that I was particularly impressed uh, by the Pennsylvania duo. At this point, I would be remiss if I didn't mention how incredibly close Yellow Group was. It was damn near a four-way tie uh, following up the end of group stage. It did have to be decided by tiebreakers in the end for second place. An honorable mention to Engelbrecht and NDRM who fought it out till the end. It was a really good group overall. I think we can conclusively say that it was the closest group out of all the four groups that competed. And that was expected, at least anticipated, by the analysis that we did in the first episode when we were talking about how the cumulative point gaps between the top seed and the bottom seed of each group was the tightest in the yellow group coming in. We can say that AJ Detto had a lot on his plate coming into this group with the launch of the beta during the tournament. So maybe a little bit distracted. I definitely don't think this is a smudge on his reputation. As far as our predictions go, however, Tape, we had this completely backwards. It turned out that the bottom seed team, Irons Tiger and St. Jude, ended up first. Duar, Arnel, Elokil, and Redstorm, the second to last team in terms of cumulative rank, 
they came in second, and uh, so on with Engelbrecht and DRM coming in third, and five battalions and AJ Dedo coming in fourth. So we had it completely flipped upside down, making this even more interesting than it otherwise would have been. Go figure. It's the one group where you and I agreed completely on the rank ordering of outcomes in anticipation of what actually happened, and that's the one where we had it most incorrect. Yeah. Okay, so to wrap up our, our discussion here, uh, do you want to talk about any specific games that you'd recommend people go back and watch? Unfortunately, I had a couple of great notes on really interesting games in my original notebook. Uh, I lost my notebook and a laptop, all of it got stolen, and Major Command doesn't keep the chat logs for very long on the current engine, unfortunately. And a lot of my discussion points were inspired by the back and forth that I was able to see just publicly between the two teams. Obviously, I can't see their team chat. So, sadly, Bear, I do not have any key games that I would like to revisit from Mars. Okay. Um, if, if we're going simply by the likelihood of outcomes, I think the yellow group, um, the fact that uh, AJ Detto and five battalions, who were the first seed, dropped um, games against the third and fourth seed in that round. That's uh, Iron Sea Tiger, St. Jude, and Dwar and Red Storm teams. Um, those might be worth watching. Uh, the other game that might be worth reviewing is uh, Clarkenfelden once. They did an incredible job um, in on Mars, and it might be worth checking in on their games as well. I can give you, apart from specific game notes or thoughts on individual games, just some top-level statistical nuance type stuff. Um, we have our game that we beat, Eric J. Klein and Mickey. I said the fourth round earlier. Oh, no, I'm correct. It was the fifth round. We beat them in the fifth round. We then also beat Easy to Kill and Lots Off Luck in the fourth round. And those two games were the shortest games in the entire Mars portion of this tournament. Everything else was sixth or later. Um, there were a lot of eighth and ninth round games. There were none that went over ten rounds. So the median here was high eight, early ninth round for completion of these games. So we were speed demons uh, on those first two that we won, which is somewhat interesting. I hadn't realized that. That's great. Yep. So that was interesting. I also took a look for all the Mars games at what the last reserve callout set is. And I don't have totals here, but in general, I saw games ending with people calling up eight or ten reserves, either at the beginning of their turn or their teammates turn before. So reserve sets got play here, but it looks like the board position and the overall dice leading up to the beginning of reserve call-ups was far more influential. Overall, reserve call-ups just kind of put the icing on the cake for the teams that were going to win. And in that one game you mentioned where child and Dorsey cannibalized each other and it had a huge impact yes. but in general we did not see huge numbers yeah. there were a few games that got up to 20 or 25 at the very end uh and usually in those cases the winning team had already killed somebody with their 15 reserve uh turn in and you know got it up to 20 or 25 in their next turn or two so that should give you an idea in a doubles duel game. You should already have the thing mostly well in hand by the time everybody starts turning in cards, particularly if everybody's trying to hold until they've both got four and both got five. It's even more so the case. So I did want to share that with you and with all of our listeners as well. Um, also, finally, last item, I want to highlight those particular teams who did win when going second and who they beat. Sure. Um, because I do have all of those listed out as well. Well, let me, tell me this. Who had the most first turn advantages? As far as I can tell, Dorsey and TH Child, I've only got the Mars ones in front of me, did get to go first all three of their games, which, of course, they won. Secondly, Roskakov and Risky won. Also went first in all three of their games and won all three of their games in the green group. 
So as far as I can tell here, those are the only two teams that got a perfect first turn advantage setup. On the flip side of that, Engineer and Norbs uh, had second. They went second in all of their games, and they did go 0-3 on Mars. Uh, let's see here. Who else do we have? Dior, LNL, Elukio, the Lord of the Rings team in Redstorm. They had three games where they went first, but they actually did lose one to Iron Sea Tiger and St. Jude. So actually three teams, TH and Dorsey, Raz, Raskakov and Risky, and Dior and Redstorm all got the great advantage. Terrific. Uh, oh, and who was the most unlucky team in the tournament in terms of outcomes? I see Eric, Jake, Klein, and Mickey, they went 0-3 in round one. Did they also have no first-turn advantage in on Mars? They actually did lose a first-turn advantage game, as a matter of fact. So they had one of those and still lost it, and that's why they went 0-3. But they weren't completely behind the second-turn ball, so to speak. Eight ball. I'm mixing metaphors. You know what I mean. I do. They had a, they, they had a good shot to win one of them sure. right there as well. Hordick and Hod overcame Norbs and Engineer in the ninth round. Hordick turned in for both 20 and 25 troops on his last turn. My God, so that must have gone a long time. Nine rounds. Yeah, nine rounds. So that was one where they just kind of kept headbutting each other, and eventually Hod and Hordick, with just an absolute blast of reserve call-ups, overtook Norbs and Engineer to win from going second in our red group. Also, Luis Casanova and Linear also overtook Engineer and Norbs. They did not finish with reserves, reserve call-ups, although they had pulled 10 and 12 the previous round and the sixth round. But in the seventh round, they overtook Engineer and Norbs. So those two guys, two teams, essentially made Engineer and Norbs' first turn advantages squander twice. So not a good choice for Engineer. As you recall, our odd couple team. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll ascribe a little bit less emphasis to our prediction on that uh, <laughs> than, than their poor luck. I will absolutely be going back and checking and seeing if there's anything that we can divine from the outcomes of those two games that might inform people playing on Mars in head-to-head matchups in the future. Right. In our blue group, only a single game, and that was the general and Cardinals rule, overtaking F-15 Free Eagle and Sam Hitson while going second. They did that in eight rounds. Cardinals rule pulled 15 reserve troops on a card turn-in to finish that game in the eighth. So that was our only second-turn upset in the entire blue group out of all six games on Mars. In our green group, we also only had one game in which the team that went second one, and that was easy to kill and lots off luck, who took out Eric J. Klein and Mickey uh, in the seventh round with 12 reserve call-ups for lots off luck. Uh, and finally, in our yellow group, we also only had one game in which the team that went second overtook the team that went first, and that was St. Jude and Iron Z Tiger overtaking Red Storm and Dior. Uh, so, Basically, between all of these games, we've got 24 games here. By my count, we had five of them in which the team that went second actually won. Well, Tape, you've set me up with the perfect transition to talk about the problem that's plagued the tournament more than any other, and that is the first turn advantage. However, before we get to that, we're going to take a quick, not actually a commercial break. Stay tuned. Many of you have asked me how you can support the show. You can support Icy Dice by becoming a paying subscriber to Major Command. A gold subscription is only $1.65 a month, roughly what it costs for a cup of coffee. You can also donate to the site. I donate monthly through PayPal, and it's all automated so I don't have to think about it. My regular donation sets me back each month roughly what it costs me in tolls to drive back and forth to work each day. If you want this game to be around, and you have the means to do the same, I strongly recommend you do so. If sparing a few dollars a month is beyond your means, that's fine. Nobody should go into financial hardship over this game. You can do your part by becoming an active member of the Major Command community, inviting new players to join, and by hosting games and tournaments. Be a positive and supportive influence on others to make this place a great place to game. All right, so maybe it was a little bit like a commercial, but for a very good cause, one that we can all get behind. Tape, you and I have to talk about the first turn advantage and just how profound it was. I would say it's 
very high. So what's the statewide average for head-to-head play? Uh, in various different threads that I've read, it, it varies and it also depends on maps. But I usually see it pegged between somewhere between 60% and 80%, uh, depending on the specific settings. Is that indeed what we found? Well, my personal guess, because I did guess in the poll, just like uh, many of the others, I imagine you have the true stats. I guessed 70%. uh, And it looks like for among those guessing and voting in this poll, most agreed with me. We had seven votes in this poll, fully five of them, or 62%, believe that the first turn advantage was around 70%. Having gone through and looked at this, um, I'm thinking it's probably closer to 80%, actually. You are right. It was 79.2%. Okay. Now, that stat bothered me as the uh, tournament organizer. I really want to see more parity going forward. And there have been a lot of good recommendations as to how to achieve that um, between uh, not allowing an attack first turn from the first player to having a reduced deployment possibly and letting the turn simply expire rather than taking the full turn. There are opportunities that exist to in order to level the playing field a little bit. Uh, problematically, we don't have enough data for the alternatives to know whether or not they're overcompensating. And I'm a little bit nervous about instituting a change in the tournament that is untested. So my prerogative as, as tournament organizer here is to choose whatever is going to be the best situation for people participating as players. These are going to be best of threes from now on, so there's a little bit more balance going to be included into the game. But in the long term, I would love to have volunteers for a true test of these alternative head-to-head settings to allow us to have more parity in a forthcoming tournament. I think that's a good idea. There's a few things that I would probably just jump in and do. I'm always hesitant to change the rules halfway through. You know, the, the tournament is kind of what you stated it is. Luck is an inherent piece of what we're working with here it's just that that is too big going first as a piece of luck and with nearly 80 percent win rate it's clear that that's one single not even dice roll but coin flip that is practically deciding these matches before they happen you could be the one seed you could be the 16 seed when you've got 32 players split into doubles and everybody's trying very hard they're taking it seriously they're analyzing the board those differences don't make that much difference the seating well the the starting going first has been proven that it actually does when you've got players who are paying attention my personal feeling on it of all the various items suggested on the boards i like having the first player that goes in the whole game among all four players deploy but not assault and then the second player who goes, who's obviously on the other team, takes their full turn. I think that at least, although someone has to go first to get the game started, that at least takes some of the aggression um, and, and the idea of doing a preventative attack on someone who might have close to a command or simply a low presence in another area, getting them out of there before they even start. It at least removes those. I think it's still a first-turn advantage to deploy and not attack, but I think that I'd be interested to try that and see how close we are to that 79%. Indeed. I'm very eager to get that test started, but for now, we've learned a great deal about Mars from our experience in the Doubles Crown series. Let's get into that. How much of an advantage does holding critical control points, critical territories on Mars make to the outcome of a game? Um, we listed the critical territories as Nilus, Homonus, and Electris. Those are the two rocket airship locations that can bombard enemy territories. Nilus is the territory that resets to three uh, at the beginning of each turn. My personal feeling on this, I actually was the only one in the poll of the voters we had to vote 50%. And that might sound a little bit low, but here's why I'm thinking that. You can still lose dice when you're bombarding. You just can't be attacked back. The Nilius, I, I would see as having more impact simply because I know that my play style usually means, oh no, they're holding Nilius. They've got one or two. Let's take it away. I don't want them getting one or two extra troops each turn. 
that might distract me from some of the other stuff that they're doing. It could just act like a blinking distraction light. But overall, just to kind of refocus on what I'm thinking here is I basically chose 50% because I don't think it has a huge impact without necessarily a team being focused on using it. And even when they are focused on using those three territories and their capabilities, there are plenty of other factors on the board that allow your opponents to gain larger deploys. In a duels game like this with two teams, I think it's usually troop count, or I'm sorry, region count, number one, and secondarily commands. Uh, so I think these key regions from Mars are low impact. Nobody else agreed with me on that, the, the most popular. Three people voted that 60% of teams who had two or three of those would win. And a couple people, a total of three, split their votes between 70 and 80%. So how wrong am I, Bear? Uh, you're not that wrong. Uh, so it, it's worth to, worthwhile to say that every single game had a advantage of two to three. So because there were only three territories we were considering, in every single game that was played, one team started with an advantage of at least two of those important territories. In those games, we saw a 61.7% advantage for teams with that two-territory control. There weren't quite enough games with all three held by one team to feel confident in the stats. It's certainly not statistically significant, but I did the math anyway, and it turned out to be just about one percentage point higher, 62.5% of games won by teams with all three of those starting locations held. Interesting. See, my personal view is, and I am not enough of a statistical or mathematics genius to quite work out what the formula would be, but I would want all of that data offset against who went first. So I started doing that math. I haven't finished that yet. Having both would have been an absolutely monumental advantage. Again, there's not enough games in order to feel confident in any stats we run on this, but over the course of the next couple tournaments we host, perhaps we can start narrowing down on just how powerful those advantages are. It will be interesting, yeah. There's one game in particular that I would probably look at just out of curiosity, and I don't have it in front of me right now. But the very first game of this tournament, when you launched it, we had the whole thing filled up. We played our match against lots off luck and easy to kill. Almost within the first two days, I want to say, of this tournament being active, most games that we saw throughout this the entire Mars round ranged from seven to ten rounds. That game, we beat them in four. Granted, I know we had super hot dice, both of us. They had super cold dice, both of them. We went first. I'll bet you, though, that we probably... I know we had at least one of the bombards in that game. Um, we may have taken it in the first round. I don't remember, but I think it would be instructive to kind of see not only as an, an advantage for a team winning, possessing those, regardless of whether they went first or second, how much faster did the game go because of it? Because I kind of think our first game was kind of that unicorn where we had literally every single factor that we're kind of looking at here going for us. And it was really fast because of it. It was really fast. I, there, I don't know if anybody beat that throughout the tournament without an AWOL player. Not during Mars, that's for sure. Let's dig into some Mars strategy. Uh, what are the lessons that you and I learned from playing, uh, was it, five games no we played three games on mars but we watched a whole bunch of others we certainly did yes so what are the takeaways uh, going forward and head-to-head play on mars whether it's 1v1 2v2 or 3v3 what are the fundamentals that we have we've taken away the settings that we're going to be discussing for the strategy here matter uh, this is a head-to-head play again we played doubles but this should same should apply for singles or 3v3 it is an escalate match reinforcements as one anywhere and forces chance. Those are the key defining characteristics of our, our game uh, settings. So here's what I found. In a game like this, with only four players on the board, and two teams, of course, the large commands just really weren't going to come into play. That's Arium, Occidentum, Orientum, and Memnum. Now, the really small ones, like Thausium and Elysium, I found became pain points in our Mars Duels game, whether it was us trying to hold them or to thwart another team from holding it at the beginning of their turn because of the plus two deploys that those would award. Uh, Thausium plus three, Elysium plus two, to be more specific. So 
I know in at least one of the games we lost, we kept trying to puncture Elysium, and we often did, but having that focus there allowed the other team to kind of clean us up elsewhere. And I know we did the same to another team as well in a game that we won. That's right. So the first thing, commands, I would say little ones do matter, um, if only as distractions from the rest of the board. It allows it allows a team to choose what battlefield they're playing on, and that makes a very big difference. Uh, the same can be said of holding Nilus round to round. Just having the threat of having only one troop on Nilus at the, at the when your turn is coming up demands of your opponents an attempt to break it so that you don't get the two auto deploy. I know two auto deploy doesn't sound like an awful lot, but if you consider that since you're constantly reinforcing your teammate for wherever you two are planning to get busy and kill somebody at the beginning of your partner's turn, you have to then leave a one region behind somewhere in most cases, which after a few rounds start to leave you with a few extra weak points around the map. If you've got Nilius, one of you two doesn't have to deplete the rest of the regions. Um, and your troop count just kind of naturally starts to float up a little bit higher than everybody else's. So it's, it's a bigger advantage than it sounds like. It, especially early on, uh, as as the cards start increasing in value, then the, the importance of holding on to Nilus decreases. Same with holding on to Elysium or uh, Thosium as to commands. But even so, just the as a decoy at the very least... They, they serve a defensive purpose for teams that manage to hold them. Yes, they do. Now, I left two commands out of those I discussed earlier, and that's Eritrium, the one in kind of linear one in the northwest of the map, and Chromium, which is somewhat of a circular one in the northeast of the map. I found in general that no one really tried to get those. They could be considered larger commands, like the ones I mentioned before, they just didn't seem to get a lot of attention in at least the games we played, which is surprising because all those territories, as compared to the big commands in the South, have fewer points of egress and theoretically would be easier to hold. Certainly Chromium. Yeah, they're just so big and so long, so time-consuming to get uh, that that combined with the necessity of knocking even your partner's ones out of it to hold them. It seems like everybody just kind of decided not to bother. That was pretty much the case across the board in all the groups. Um, I think there were a total of two games where a command in Eritrium or Chromium was ever even achieved. And I don't believe there were any games, and I could be wrong about this, that I don't believe there were any games where a command in Chromium or Eritrium was held um, in a meaningful part of the game. So you saw it happening just before games ended, but you never saw it early on where the, the extra troops in a deployment could really be put to great use. That absolutely matches about what I saw. I'm glad you qualified that with meaningful parts of the games, because when you're cleaning up, yeah, it happens. The last element that I think everybody universally ignored were the neutral beginning bonus regions, the steam cities of Agonia, the dome, or not the dome cities in Nightlace. We absolutely get those. Um, let me try this again. Steam Cities of Argonia, Robots of Acheron, or Acheron, I'll go with Acheron, and the Atomic Generators of Pneumonia. Uh, Memonia. I don't think anybody even bothered to get those unless they were on their way to killing somebody who stood on the other side of it. I saw it taken in one game. Linear Curve and Luis Casanova used, they, they started off with almost a complete command in Libyum. They, they opted, I think it was turn one or two, to secure... Agonia. It was on the second player's turn, the first the first player on their team deployed to the adjacent territories to allow it to happen. They happened to roll quite well, and they held it for the rest of the game and won. Okay, very, very interesting. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a game where they won when they started second. And that, in that case, the drop helped them out. Indeed, indeed. They're, that's something that's really hard to to pin down too closely because they vary so much from game to game. Yes, in the uh, Mars section, they won. Yeah, Luis and Linear beat Engineer and Norbs, and they went second, and they ended up taking it fairly early in the seventh round. It was the seventh round. My goodness, that took a long time. 
Well, you might think, but eight, eight or eight, not eight and nine rounds. Mostly nine is the most. Common. Oh, oh, oh! They took they took the game in the seventh round. What when? What turn did they take Libya uh, Agonia? Uh, I imagine early, as you mentioned, uh, based on their drop. So I'm guessing first or second round. First, second turn, yeah. But they won the game early and going second. So it might be that everybody's got a blind spot here, and that instead of necessarily going straight for the opponent to keep them weak, there is an advantage to securing an auto deploy now granted they had to have most of libium to make that work and they had to have essentially that region steam cities of agonia well barricaded i certainly still wouldn't try it if i had any adjacent enemies to it um it just kind of seems like a good way to risk burning my troops without actually taking something away from the opponent and then not being able to hold it i see him as one region mini commands almost yeah so the agonia the agonia play is a high risk high reward play only to be attempted by those with the uh, the guts to take that kind of risk absolutely now bombarding what do you think of bombarding bare necessities uh, i found it useful for breaking commands uh it really only useful in iridium um holding homonis or threatening to take homonis in order to use it to bombard the three territories in Iridium that it overlooks, is useful to dissuade somebody from investing in a command there. It's basically impossible to defend uh, four points of entry when you consider what Homonis opens up. Um, so Iridium becomes incredibly hard to even hope to hold a command unless you also happen to hold Homonis. So uh, basically Iridium... As a consequence of the bombardment locations that Homonis offers, is a uh, pipe dream of a command to attempt to hold in such a short game that uh, Escalate tends to uh, lead towards. I'd agree with that. We certainly used it in one or two of our games to great effect. The one that we won against Lots of Luck and Easy to Kill, we already had just everything going for us. I remember I had something like five or six troops on Homonis and managed to bomb out somewhere in the neighborhood of nine of our opponents on one turn with Nary and Ice Cube. It was just brutal. Yeah, we, we, we couldn't stop rolling fire in that game. I believe it was the first game that we played and won, the first game won in the tournament. And it was simply due to the fact that we, we went first, we had perfect dice, we had an incredibly favorable deployment with Homonis and Electris both controlled. Uh, everything was stacked against, lots off luck, and... Uh, easy to kill, who put up a valiant effort and, and pulled two games out of a very tough group. And that led to us being a bit cocky about this in the first podcast, and then things went in another direction, and we had to fight for our lives in the aforementioned tiebreakers. So let that be our lesson to certainly poo-poo and be pessimistic about our chances in the future in the hopes that uh, the dice gods smile upon us. I don't think... I don't think that we ever used Electris to any significant effect. Electris isn't worth very much. Uh, I see it being useful only as a defensive beacon. Uh, again, a, a way to attract an enemy uh, into a, a bad set of roles or a disadvantageous set of roles just to remove it from the map. Um, but yeah, Electris has nowhere near the value of Homonis simply because it targets, it, you know, it, it borders one less territory from bombardment. So, in summary here, talking about all the various strategic elements on Mars, I'm going to say that the most obvious important thing is going first, which unfortunately doesn't have much to do with gameplay. Second, behind that though, I would say that holding a small command like Elysium or Thausium is probably my number two, just for the plus two or the plus three in it. Uh, and my 2B is Nilius because it's a plus two as well. Uh, Nilius is also easier to get, but it is also bordered by three regions. It can be just as hard to hold. You won't have as much of a troop concentration on that one spot. Essentially, you have to surround it to hold it reliably, which is a little different than putting external borders on a command. So that's why I kind of hold it equal. So that's my number two, is our various plus two and plus three elements, Nilius and the two small commands. Number three, I would say probably excluding Electris would be Homonis. I just had a lot of fun with it. 
I liked bombarding people with it strategically. I think it's pretty far behind our 2A and 2B. And finally is my least important factor would be large commands. Now that's all map related. What about strategies and how you approach just playing in double tools? So what I found to be the most consistently successful strategies or techniques for doubles duels was um, always passing the maximum number of troops to a teammate. Uh, the best players, the best participants in the tournament, the ones with the highest win rates, consistently passed at least three troop or at least two troops a turn to their teammates, often more than two. Um, now this is a little harder to. Uh, to track as far as a stat requires a lot more careful um, data entry. But uh, as a superficial overlook, I saw players like TH Child and Dorsey did a huge amount of passing. Um, they averaged 3.3 uh, troops passed per turn in, in Mars uh, compared to less successful teams um, passing as little as one troop a turn on average. Very interesting. Yeah, early on, you don't have a huge opportunity unless you don't actually attack, in which case you might as well just be deploying on them. So if you're passing that many troops, that would imply, just as one example, that you deploy all three of your troops on one of your own regions, you attack, move, get no ice, so you have six troops left, you advance one, and then you pass four. Um, or you get one ice, and you advance one and pass three which essentially leaves that region you attacked from with just one on it. it. It's hard to do that, certainly early in the game. Later in the game, of course, things change, um, and you get other opportunities to do things. Here'd be my number one item is rather obvious when you think about it, but when you have a region that is barricaded or has, to be specific, has no opponents adjacent to it, and you have more than one troop there, Get him out of there and give him to your opponent so he can attack and, in turn, create more safe regions to reinforce out of. The thinking there is essentially that you're keeping as many as possible of your troops in play on your front lines and aggressive. And at the same time, by moving them out of those barricaded regions, you are not leaving weak spots on your front line. Early on, this can be difficult, if, especially if you're well evenly spread with the opponent. You still want to pass two to your partner, at least. To do that, you might have to leave something vulnerable. The sooner you can get stuff barricaded, the less points of vul vulnerability you'll have combined with more of your troops in aggressive play. So that'd be my big piece to playing a game in doubles like this, so really a lot of team games. Uh, a couple other points I noticed. Um, the focusing on taking easy cards rather than smashing large stacks of troops against each other. The, in an Escalate game, the value of cards is really the, the most critical decider of game outcomes, uh, other than going first, as it turns out. Um, so you see a lot of people prioritizing attacking easy, uh, low, attacking defend, defending territories with only one or two troops rather than attacking territories with three or more. Um, the emphasis there was pretty much universal um, among teams that were successful. And uh, as a counterpoint, you saw teams who were attacking against large stacks had a much lower um, success rate over the course of the tournament. I'm not surprised by that. I'm absolutely the guy who sometimes wants to go after the big stacks. My thinking on doing that generally is you're rolling three versus two as the attacker, attacker all the time. So you have that slight statistical expectation of outcome where the attacker is likely to do better. So I do like to get those big stacks attacked instead of letting them continue to grow them and then use that same attacker's advantage on me. You do correctly point out and escalate though, you gotta make sure you're getting a card first. The second piece of that is if that attacker's advantage works out well for you, that can be absolutely devastating when you melt somebody's six or seven stack with your seven or eight stack. Uh, completely turns the game in your favor, takes what they consider to be a centerpiece or a keystone of their strategic defensive play off the board, it can be devastating. But it's also 
high risk to even try to do that because if that goes bad for you, it can completely flip things on you. And it ties into the cards as well. I know we lost one of our Middle East games where we probably had an even shot when I decided A, to turn in my cards early and B, to go after a big stack. And I rolled six ice cubes in a row and we were toast after that. Who was that against? Uh, that was us in the Middle East. I forgot which game it was, but in particular, I turned in for four, turned in a set for four extra deploys, uh, dropped those on top of a four I had, and I think I was attacking into somebody's command in the Middle East, that small command in the center north, and it went very badly for me. And um, you were doubtful about turning in my cards already. I was like, no, let's do it. And you're like, okay. Mm, that's the last point I wanted to discuss the value of turning cards in earlier rather than later. Yes. That one's really, really tough as well. I don't have a clear answer on it. I play it by feel every time. Obviously, you get fewer cards when you're turning in early, but when you do turn in early and the dice go decently for you or you have a key strategic goal like breaking your command or removing one of your opponents from an entire side of the map and they've only got a region or two to do it, it can be absolutely worth it because you're essentially taking the dominant position and backing them into a corner. But if you do take those cards early and your strategic goal doesn't work out, it's just really, really bad. In general, you want more, more troops out of it. You want to wait. You want to make your opponents turn in for the four or the six or the eight if you can survive it and not fall too far behind letting them do that. What do you think, Bear? As a principle, I think prioritizing early turn-ins only when you have bolds in order to, to benefit from the extra troops deployed. Um, that's that's what I've saw seen myself as most successful in this tournament so far. Uh, otherwise, holding out as long as possible to allow for turning in two turns in a row, for example, as, as a possibility, that that's what I've seen as, as generally the most successful. Um, the other things I've noticed is that a lot of the better teams, teams with higher win rates, have been turning in towards the end of the game in such a way that by consuming a teammate and taking their cards, the game can be closed out instantly. So uh, this is something that um, I had intended in a game uh, when I was just playing against you in Mars. Again, doubles, escalate, same settings. Uh, very recently, and you were teamed up with Blue Velvet, I was teamed up with uh, Linear Curve, I left myself with a total of three troops and four cards, but um, due to my poor communication, that uh, the, the strategy never was described to consume me, take my cards, and then close the game out, which may have ended with our team winning as opposed to losing. Absolutely. Whereas because Linear didn't kill you and go nuts, one of us did. Exactly. Yeah, Blue Velvet and I Ended up taking that game. Yeah, that's an interesting one, the um, cannibalization strategy. I've seen it used a few times in Sixers and Crusade games. I personally have not used that in the doubles, but I haven't played all that many doubles until very, very recently. Uh, I, I've seen TH Child did it um, with Dorsey in a game that they were very likely to lose against uh, Linear Curve and Luis Casanova on um, the Middle East map, uh, group stage two. So they came back from from almost losing. They had started second, so they were only had a 20% chance of winning that game. Uh, but they pulled it out at the last second by consuming Dorsey for her cards, turning in, and running the map. Very impressive. I'll have to go take a look at that. Mm -hmm. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Um, one final bit of strategy here. Uh, one final bit of strategy here is focusing on one player or focusing on two opponents um, simultaneously. What do you find to be more successful? I think the bigger the team game, the more important it is to knock off opponents. In a doubles game like this, I didn't really try that very much. I essentially tried to get the weak regions or to get a player out of geographically on the map one side of it just so that the other team could really only attack our regions on that side of the map on one of their two turns per round when it got low and the other team had an opponent that 
was starting to struggle, maybe down into single digits. At that point, I was looking to focus for elimination, but I didn't, as I recall, see us picking somebody from the start of the game and just exclusively focusing on them. Not that I think it's a bad idea. It's just not what we did, I would say. What are your thoughts? I thought that it was only useful insofar as forcing forcing players to spread their troops in order to defend a player who was um, very low in troop count. So potentially allowing them to... or Let me rephrase this. I found it useful to focus one player when, by doing so, that player's teammate would have to allocate troops to their damaged partner rather than put their troops in a more strategically advantageous position. Basically, you took away their ability to be aggressive. Exactly. So they might want to hold a command that they own. They might want to uh, deploy troops to a front where they could uh, take over Nilis or Hamonis or potentially break a command that we have. And instead, they had to bolster a flailing teammate before they were eliminated. goes back to what you were mentioning earlier about choosing the battleground that you're going to play on. I think this is a big first turn advantage thing and that you get to dictate what the other team does because they have to react to you. And whether that's targeting one of their players or them targeting a command that you've created, that you, that you're holding or Nilius that you're holding all goes back into who has the initiative. And it's really hard to steal the initiative, you know, 21% of the time, uh, as we've seen when you go second. So with that tape, I think we've wrapped up the group stage of the Doubles Crown Series. Without further ado, uh, Tapor, it's been a pleasure as usual doing a podcast recording with you, and I look forward to our next ones. Thank you very, very much, Bear Necessities. I had a great time, and I will talk to you next time. That's it for Episode 2 of Icy Dice. We would love your questions and comments. Drop us a line at icydicepodcast at gmail.com or message us directly in a major command. If you'd like to contribute to a future podcast, we'd love to talk with you. Icy Dice is edited and produced by me. Our intro music was by Professor Click and our ad music was by Kevin McLeod. Use under a Creative Commons license. Until next time, may the Dice Gods smile upon you.